Hello, and welcome to the recap by Dive Collective. Over the next few minutes, we're going to hit the highlights of the past week's reading from our reading plan. Annika and I, and sometimes Kelly, are excited to invite you along as we read through the Bible together. You can find our reading plan at divecollective.org in our shop under free downloads. We know some of you love the accountability of a checklist, while others thrive by the freedom to join in whenever your schedule allows. The recap is intended to meet all of those needs. So whichever one of those categories you fit into, just know we're excited to have you here today. So this is the March 6th episode of the recap. We're covering still Exodus, Luke, and Job. So Exodus, we were reading, we started in 1221. So do you remember I brought up the fact that during all of the plagues, there were multiple times where people recognized that this all had to be from God. Anyway, that whole train of thought kind of made me wonder if or how many of the Egyptians either became or wanted to become part of the house of Israel, you know? Yes. Well, in chapter 12, when they're leaving, Mm -hmm. it talks about that mixed crowd that went up. And so I totally cheated and I just like dug into that a little bit and just looked <laughs> to see what other people had said about it because that's how I like to yeah, that's what Bible. you're supposed like to do to yeah yeah if there's something so, that triggers something and you want to dig do it it sounds like I googled it which is kind of an awesome option to do because then you get all kinds of just different <laughs> who knows what you're gonna get it's true yeah. and then you know there are some sites that I know that I trust so I feel like I could look and see what they say but then also you get interesting perspectives too but I looked in a study bible or two also and it sounds like that was possibly part of that mixed crowd it sounds like it was a lot of random verse 38 so this is after after the Israelites leave Egypt or just like in that part where it's talking about how they're going out um and it says in verse 37 about 600,000 men on foot besides their families and then in verse 38 it says a mixed crowd also went up with them along with Mm -hmm. a huge number of livestock, flocks, and herds. So that just made me wonder who are, who's this mixed crowd made up of? Well, you're going to get to verse 48, right? If an immigrant is staying with you and wants to keep the Passover to God, every male and his female must be circumcised. Then he can participate in the meal. The same law applies both to the native and the immigrant who is staying with you. All the Israelites did exactly. So the, the law, he basically allows provisions for, these people who have mixed mm-hmm. into their and you, you see that happening a lot too like whenever if there's a servant in the house or whatever that wants to become part of that they just have to be circumcised like that's that whole extra right experience. it just seems yeah. though in context he's just brought them out of Egypt and now he's saying it would make sense that he would have to give this rule again with the understanding that now they probably have more than just Israelites with them so mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that too. The other thing that I I noted is two different thoughts occurred to me shortly after that in chapter 13. It says, when the time comes and your son asks, what does this mean? You tell him, God brought us out of Egypt and out of a house of slavery with a powerful hand. I kept thinking, and I don't know whether I mentioned this in a previous podcast or not, but that idea that Pharaoh didn't know who the Israelites were because that information wasn't passed down and how God from the beginning of his relationship with Israel, he sets up these I, these intentional reminders. Yeah, reminders like that they're supposed to build these monuments or what mm-hmm. we call Ebenezer's to remind them of what God did. And in this case, like there's feasts and there's these holidays that they have to be reminders so that they never forget. And so I love that God's people are called to these different holidays, the way that we celebrate Easter and Christmas and all these things to 
let us never ever forget. And we do communion mm -hmm. again in the same way that they, for the purpose of Passover, to remember what God did in Israel, what he did in Jesus, what he's going to do. The other thing that I love about that passage in specifics is that I remember when I started homeschooling my kids, at some point, somebody said to me, don't answer a question until they ask. When we homeschool, especially when we start homeschooling, there's this idea that we have to feed them all kinds of information and their job is to absorb all of the things that we decide are important for them to know. And when they're young, when they're little like that, they're not ready for the information until they ask mm -hmm. for it. I love that God even says there, he says, when your children ask, that there's going to be a time that they're like, God knows that there's going to be a time when your children are ready and you'll know they're ready when they ask. When the time comes and your son asks you, what does this mean? You tell him. For any mom that also is out there just kind of tempted to feel like if their kid doesn't understand something that somehow they've failed them. I remember being in a church where like there's church, some churches don't let kids participate in communion at all. But I remember the first time I was in a church, the church was like, your kids are allowed to participate. Make sure that you talk to them about it mm -hmm. when they do it. So here's a time for you to have a conversation with your kids. Yeah. Then they participate in communion with you in the midst of it. And they don't necessarily understand and that's okay, but there'll come a time in that same way. We don't have to force information into our kids. We can't do it. There'll come a time when they're ready for information. I don't know. There's freedom in that, especially as a homeschooling mom, that feels like it's my responsibility to make sure they know all the yeah, things. It takes a little bit of a weight off, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting. So this um, is not a deep thought at all. And this is probably just something that I want to point out to you, but also in chapter 13. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that whole, that Pharaoh didn't know who Joseph was. Mm -hmm. Like the Pharaoh that was here didn't remember Joseph. Well, 13, 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because mm -hmm. Joseph had made the Israelites swear a solemn oath saying, God will come to your aid. Then yes. you must take my bones with you from this place. So when Joseph was alive, yes, life was good for the Israelites. They were, mm -hmm. He was, a, he was a ruler in Egypt. When Joseph was alive, things were fine. And yet there was still that knowledge that they were not in the place that God had promised Abraham. You know what I mean? Like they just still knew that they weren't where they belonged. And so Joseph, even though things weren't necessarily nearly as hard as they were when it came time for them to leave Egypt, there was still that knowledge and that hint of the promise that God had promised Abraham to take them to the promise. That had been passed be down. Yes. That had been passed down. What a faithful people to pass down all of these small things and to remember to fulfill these mm -hmm. like promises and yeah. Or even to remember that God promised. Yeah. So even that thought of like when the, when it doesn't even seem like the promise necessarily matters anymore. Yes. Like God's promises, he will always keep his promises. Yeah. And so just that reminder that when life is easy, the Israelites weren't necessarily thinking about the promised land at that point because they're mm. fine in Egypt. And yet God still remembered that he had promised them something better. There was a really good reminder for me in Exodus. I've totally been in a season of complaining. Okay, so we're like what? Like currently? Yeah. It's now been two months that we haven't had any of our stuff since we packed out to leave Gitmo. I mean, I left the Caribbean <laughs> where it's beautiful and sunny and warm all the time. And I'm in a Virginia beach winter that is cold and gray. And you're wearing a sweater. I'm wearing, I'm actually, if you want to know, wearing a sweatshirt and a sweater right now. <laughs> and 
I'm in a house that's cold and gray because it's empty. It doesn't, it's not warm and cozy. I don't have furniture. I don't have You're any sitting of in stuff. lawn chairs. By I'm a fire. Sitting, yes. <laughs> and so like, I have all these things. The house I'm in is great, but I left a house that I loved. And so I'm constantly looking around this place and being like, well, none of my stuff is going to fit in here. And it's not as pretty. Anyway, I've just been really grumpy about not being in Cuba anymore and being in winter and one of the things in chapter 16, the whole manna and quail scene, when they're all grumbling about not having food, Moses and Aaron are talking to the Israelites and telling them that God's going to provide this food for them. In verse 7, it says, in the morning you will see the Lord's glory because he, had heard your, he has heard your complaints about him. Because who are we that you're going to complain about us? The Israelites are complaining <laughs> to Moses and Aaron, and they're saying, why did you guys bring us out of Israel or out of Egypt? And we have no food and we have no water. And Moses and Aaron are like, you're, you're blaming it on us, but we all really know that you're just complaining. Right. God. Like you're making it seem like you're mad at Aaron and I, but we really all know that you're mad at God. Yes. And so I was reading that and I was thinking, I like, I've pub, like everyone, cause we're coming back to a place we're back in Virginia beach, which is a place where we've lived before. And so we're seeing lots of people that we knew before and everyone's asking how we're doing. And if we like being back and I'm like, no, not really. Like I'm pretty honest about it, but then I, which is not a bad thing. I don't think, but right. then I feel like for some reason, it makes me feel like I have the freedom to then complain about all the things that I don't like. And so just remembering that we have seen God's hand in this. I know that this is where God has put us back in Virginia Beach. Yes. And recognizing that, yeah, not everything is perfect and rosy right now. And it's okay for me to miss things about where we lived before but it's not okay for me to just whine and complain about it. Like, it's just really Because when you're complaining, you're complaining against God. Exactly. Yeah. That was, I was sitting, I was sitting in front of my fireplace reading this and I was like, shoot, I'm not complaining about the Navy. I'm not mad at the Navy for sending me here because really God is way bigger than, you know what I mean? So that has been ringing in my head for the past several days since I read it because it was a super, just super practical and we look at the Israelites and we're like, hello. I mean, God just parted the Red Sea for you. Don't you realize, you know what I mean? It's so easy yes. to read Exodus and see all of the things that God did to show them that he was good and kind and in control and look at the Israelites as miserable, pathetic people. And yet, I mean, we totally do the same thing. So yeah, that's a great, that is a fantastic application. I would say that for me, I've thought about Moses as I'm trying to write. <laughs> I have been working on an article for the church magazine and it was a good working copy of it was done. And so I sent it to my writer friend to edit and she was like, it was the first time she got back to me and she was like, I think you should scrap it. <laughs> I was like, all of it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, I under, it's good. It's not ready. It, I mean, I, I think that there's, I think it has potential to at some point be something, but right now it's not, it's not what it's supposed, it's not the thing that it's supposed to be, but I'm excited about what I'm writing about instead, but it makes me think, I remember talking to you on the plane 
it was shortly after liver failure. Mm -hmm. And do you remember what, you don't know about to say? The tiny plane when you were writing this all down? The tiny plane. Yes. And I'm writing this all down. And I remember going like, Lord, because I I had kind of said to him, I was like, you know, if a thousand people are going to come to know you in my death, take me, be glorified. If a thousand people can know you in my living, then let me live and be Mm -hmm. glorified and really feeling like, because he let me live, I have this second chance at this race and I've got, I want to run well. And I remember looking at you and saying, my fear is that if my calling is to communicate the gospel is to write, to do these things, I need him to give me the stuff to say. Like, I don't have, it's like, it doesn't, it's nothing if it doesn't come from him. So Anyway, it makes me think of Moses. Is there Was there a time when he was like, what if I raise my hand this time and nothing happens? Do you know what I mean? Oh, like, yeah. What if I go to approach him and he doesn't speak to me? He doesn't mm-hmm. meet me on the mountain or he doesn't, like, whatever. Like, I'm in that season of, is there more? Like, will you give me more? And that trying to trust him in a, and having that first time where I've written a whole thing and somebody's like, it's, this isn't good, you know, going, oh gosh, like, what if I'm done? What if I'm out? What if I'm out of things to say? <laughs> anyway, that that's probably my application as I put myself in Moses' shoes going, how many times did he go? Is it going to work again this time? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is he going to? Well, that makes me think of, I thought of this while we were reading Exodus this time, and I'm a little bit jumping ahead, but I'm going to do it anyway. In Exodus this time, there's the scene where Moses strikes the rock to get the water out of the rock. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what God told him to do, right? God's, yep. it's in chapter 17. God says, take the staff you struck the Nile with in your hand and go. I'm going to stand there in front of you on the rock at Horeb, which, which is what he tells us he's going to do all the time. He's going to stand there with us. But that is just a really cool mental picture for me. I'm going to stand there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. When you hit the rock, water will come out of it and the people will drink. So that's what happens. Moses hits the rock and it works. Water comes out. Well, later on down the road, this is the whole reason why Moses doesn't get to go into the promised land. Like it, which Mm -hmm. seems like a really, really not big deal. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But God tells Moses to speak to the rock. Just to clarify him, not going to the promised land is a huge deal, but what Moses does doesn't seem like a huge deal. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) Him not going to the promised land is a huge deal, but the reason for it seems kind of minor. Like seriously. Yeah. Right. I was thinking about kind of along the same lines as what you were saying when I was reading this. He was angry when he hits the rock instead of speaks to the rock later on. But was it that fear that maybe God wasn't going to show up this time? Hmm. And he knew that in the past it had worked when he hit the rock. I don't know. It just was, those were thoughts were going through my head. And I thought I almost went forward to read it. And I was like, no, I'm going to wait until we get there and I'll see. It'll be fun to see when it comes up and yes this conversation and yeah we'll um, have this all the our... little details that are fuzzy in my mind about that scene we can maybe clarify a little bit but yeah that's good so moving ahead to job we start in chapter 30 this week and chapter mm-hmm. 30 is where it's at for me with job because up until now job's been talking to his friends talking to himself his friends have been talking to him and they've all been talking about themselves and about god But chapter 30 is where it's the last time that Job speaks, if I'm not mistaken, before God speaks. Mm -hmm. But it's the first time that Job addresses God. He says in verse 20, he says, I shout for help, God, and get nothing, no answer. This is the first time that we hear him specifically address God. And then chapters of this gross, who is a luhu? 
Elihu is okay, even mentioned so in the funny. last part of Job. Go for this it. This is the first time he shows up. This is his, yeah. there's the other three friends that I've been going and going. There is so much of him that I can relate to. And I was <laughs> reading it and I was like, ugh, like, I don't like it that I can relate to this guy. Oh my god! Because he's totally like, I mean, he has really good arguments. Yeah. And he's like, okay, I have been waiting and listening and I just like, I can't keep it in anymore. And when you first start reading it, I think you're kind of like, oh, this, this guy has some good points. Like he's talking first acknowledging who he is. He's not one of the three friends that's right. sitting with Job. He, it seems like he's kind of a disciple of them in some ways. He's a young man and he's kind of been listening this entire time, not saying anything. And now all of a sudden yes. he just rages. He just like gets up. It's almost like he stands up and he was like, I have had enough of yes. listening to all of you. Right. You he's young. To me. Well, and the he thing, lectures them for chapters. So the thing that, that very first makes me think like, oh, I kind of like this guy. Is that the, is the intro before he starts talking the very yeah. beginning of chapter two, it says, so these three men quit answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, he gets angry at Job because Job had justified himself rather than God, which I kind of love that. Elihu recognized Job is just justifying himself well, and defending himself. The whole problem with Job in general, the book of Job is that the whole, every time you're listening to all of these people, you're like, that's true. That's true. That's true. So much of what they're saying is right on the mark. It's not, yes. not true. Anyway, it's, right. It's not, not true. Except my issue with Job is you know he's not perfect. He right. he portrays himself as this perfect man, and you know that he's upright and he's good because of the first scene where he's basically his name is brought up in the, the heavens. You know he exactly upright. right, mm -hmm. right. But Elihu says he's angry at Job because Job justified himself rather than God, and then he's also angry at Job's three friends because they had failed to refute him, and yet they had condemned him. So Elihu is like this logical thinker, arguer kind of a guy. <laughs> and he's like, okay, so you three failed. Like you've been sitting here for yeah. ever arguing with Job. You haven't accomplished your goal and yet you're still going to condemn him. Your arguments haven't been good enough, but they have, but it hasn't changed your mind about him. So I, that's what five say mine says, but when he saw that the three other men had exhausted their arguments, he exploded with pent up anger. Yes. Yeah, I, just, I mean, he became angry, angry. Yeah, and this—that's how yeah. I picture. I, I, yeah. I picture him sitting there listening and being like, "Like you guys are the—you're terrible at this." Basically, <laughs> like he's a total lawyer. You know what I mean? Yes. And so that made me at the very beginning kind of be like, "Oh, I like this guy because I like <laughs> logical arguments. I like things that make." And then at the beginning, when he's talking, basically putting forth his defense, I am young and you guys are old. And so I didn't feel like I should speak. Yeah. Um, but he brings up the point that it's not about age. It's the spirit in a per person, the breath from the almighty that gives anyone mm. understanding. And so I'm like, okay, right he's got a point there. Yeah. So, so he, he has all these really good arguments. And even when he's confronting Job, there are things that I'm like, yeah. So in 33, he says he almost touches on that concept that God is God. God can do whatever he wants. In 33 verse 12, he says, I tell you, you're wrong in this matter because God is greater than man. Just really, you can stop there. If he had stopped there, he'd be right on. Well, yeah. And so anyway, I didn't take a lot of notes in the rest because I was just, yeah, you're just watching the whole down. thing. Yeah. Uh -huh. And then when we stop, we stop at the end of 35 and I'm like, shoot, he's not done talking yet. So I feel I like know. I'm still in the middle of the story. Yeah. And I know my favorite part is coming. 
the oh, end see, of I actually like wrote favorite. at the end of 34, when I finished reading chapter 34, I, w- I had actually just read two chapters because I was kind of like enthralled. Yeah. And I get to that last word, wisdom, and it, I actually put a note here. I was like, I want to keep reading because I want to get past this loud mouth into the good part. Yeah, that's <laughs> funny. Yeah, right. So I'm reading this and thinking, okay, this guy's making a little bit of sense, but right, we don't really care what he has to say. What we yeah, care yeah, about yeah. is like 38 and beyond. Mm. Yep. Which is coming. It's coming. Those are my... I think my favorite Old Testament chapters, the end of Jim. Oh, me too. Oh my gosh, me too. All right, moving on to Luke. There's a lot in Luke. Everything mm-hmm. moves so fast in the Gospels, it feels mm-hmm. like. Okay, it's interesting to be reading Luke and the parables that are completely different that we didn't read in Matthew, and also the ones that are similar but mm-hmm. may have a different message mm-hmm. because they're, they're just different in some small details. But this one in the story of the crooked manager, this is one of those ones. And there's a couple in this week's reading that I read and I was like, man, I'd really, this is one I'd really love to study inductively. I'm not going to. So I'm just going to acknowledge that this is something that I'm not really sure what it's saying, but I kind of have these like wonderings that if someday I get to dig in, but it's interesting because he's almost, he's telling him to be streetwise. He's basically saying, basically the parable is about a guy that kind of cheats the system Mm -hmm, and Jesus praises him. And so I was trying to kind of, what is God saying here? And what I wondered to myself, and I'm just going to put it out there for you to respond to is that God wants us to focus on the bare essentials, not on every detail of the law, not on every detail of getting it all right. But maybe the point is to feel free to bend rules if it allows for the freedom to love God and others well, maybe. You know what I mean? Like, you can't lie. Lying is not okay. But lying for the sake of saving, an, but Corey Ten Boom lying, that was her being streetwise for many other right. human so beings. Right, so see how it pr- plays out practically is Like the Pharisees spent their entire lives following the law to the letter of the law and missing opportunities to glorify God by healing people on the set. Like Jesus was doing these things that weren't according to the letter of the law, but they were very Mm -hmm. much according to the heart of God. I'm wondering if that's what that parable is really about, is that it's not about it's the same. It's the same as the Pharisees when they were mad at Jesus for for healing on the Sabbath. Right. You know what I mean? That whole Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's a tricky parable and Mm -hmm. someday maybe I'll look deeper at it, but I just wanted to acknowledge that there are some parables in here that I'm not going to wrestle with at this time, Mm -hmm. but I am going to wonder aloud about because we can do that. This reminded me of Matthew was when the blind man is made whole again. And I remembered talking about this when we went through Matthew together about how Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And he says, Lord, I want to see. And then Jesus says, receive your sight. Your faith has saved you. And instantly he can see and he follows God. And so that whole, that request to see, I just, I remember talking to Matthew about how it was so much more than just visual sight. Like he he was asking to see, but he was asking to see God, not just to not be blind anymore with his eyes. And I love that. Um, The lepers, verse 11 and 12, as he entered a village, 10 men, all lepers met him. They kept their distance but raised their voices, calling out, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. Taking a good look at them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. 
they went. They stood at a distance from Jesus because lepers knew at that time that to come close to a righteous man, that they were not allowed. They were so Mm -hmm. unclean. They couldn't even come near to somebody who was righteous. And Jesus, who I imagine they understood as merciful, they still kept their distance from him. And then what Jesus asked them to do, I would imagine would have been even harder than them calling out to him in the first place. Jesus asked them to go to the priests who would not have wanted to be anywhere near them. Jesus, I mean, Jesus touched the lepers, but he's actually going asking them to go to the priest. They would have wanted to be further away than even like vocal distance <laughs> from a leper. He tells them to go to the priests and they went. Their obedience to try to go and approach priests who they would have known would, they would not have responded well to that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, still on their way, they became clean. Like to me, I feel like so often the miracle happens after we are obedient to do yeah. the faithful thing. Mm-hmm. So them going was an act of faith. And while on their way, they became clean. In chapter 18, the rich... 18, rich young ruler. Go for yeah. it. Yeah, The rich young ruler comes and asks him what he has to do to inherit eternal life, which really is the wrong question in the first place, right? Because we don't have to do anything. Right. But then Jesus basically tells him, you have to sell all your stuff and then you'll have treasure in heaven. And the guy goes away sad because he's very rich. And seeing that he became sad, Jesus said, how hard it is for those to enter with wealth to enter the kingdom of God. He's painting this picture of how we get so caught up in things here on earth. It's not that you, there's a threshold for how much money you're allowed to make or whatever, but just being caught up with things on earth. And so those who hear this, they ask, well, then who can be saved? Like, it sounds kind of like a total downer. You know yeah. what I mean? Cause they recognize, well, everyone's like that. Yes. And Jesus says, what's impossible with man is possible with God. And so just that promise that when you think through the fact that we don't have to do anything to inherit eternal life. And as people, if we did have to do something, it'd be impossible. We can't do it. And yet it's possible with God. Yeah. And he does it it for us. It makes me, yeah, totally reminded me of the whole passive. I'm really focusing on the word passive this Lent and that, that nailed it. Like you get, you got no control over it. Yep. It's him alone. So the story about the investment with the 10 talents, this one's different than Matthew's version, which kind of caused me to pause. Like this one, it says, there's a man descended from a royal house who needed to make a long trip back to headquarters to get authorization for his rule and then return. But he first called 10 servants together, gave them each a sum of money and instructed them, operate with this until I return. And I never noticed this before in all the times I've read it. Um, But the citizens there hated him. So they sent a commission with a signed petition to oppose his rule. We don't want this man to rule us is what they said. And then they, he comes He comes back with the authority to rule. And you kind of get a hint of why they didn't want him to rule back when that third servant, he responds with why he didn't invest the money and he buried it. He said, to tell you the truth, I was a little afraid. I know you have high standards and hate sloppiness and don't suffer fools gladly. At least that's what mine says. And mm-hmm. I just think that is, that's why so many people resist making Jesus Lord because they see him 
as a master and if and his his standards are high mm-hmm. his standards are impossible to meet and they miss the point that's why he's our savior because he came mm-hmm. and he met those standards for us and we simply act out of a love response for what he's already done for us but until like the holy spirit shows you that and you can't know the heart of mm-hmm. our savior you just know you can see from the outside that the standards that we're called to are really high and it seems really scary and that makes sense cuz who would want that Mm-hmm. Until you realize that when you know him, when you actually live with him as Lord, you find out, oh, wait, those standards are all met and I get to live. Right. I get to do it freely without the burden. So there's another parable where I don't remember which one it was, but it was another one that I was like, I don't know what you're getting at here. And it made me just think of how much I really love inductive study because I know that it so often sheds light on it. Oh, it's the parable of... um the corrupt farmhands in Luke mm. 20 verse nine. Mm-hmm. I don't really know why he gives them the cornerstone thing and why that made mm-hmm. sense to them and made them so upset. So I kind of just made a note of that, that that's something that I'd love to dig into. But then I got back to, I came down to the paying taxes one and it was the part about Caesar where Jesus says, show me a coin. Now this engraving, who does it look like? And what does it say? And they said, Caesar. And Jesus said, then give Caesar what is his and give God what is his. And it just, honestly, it made me be like, oh man, I love inductive Bible study because only because I've done inductive Bible study have I, did I ever realize what this was saying. Because I was doing inductive study, it made me look closer at what, what was he saying about that coin? And he was saying that that coin had an image on it. The image was Caesar's, which meant that that coin belonged to Caesar. And then his response is, give Caesar what is Caesar and what God, give to God what is God's, which made me ask, what is, God's? what is God's? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then of course, so what has God's image on it? We do. We are God's mm-hmm. image bearers. So what God's saying is, I don't, I don't need coins. I don't want your money. I want you. I want my image bearers. They, I want them to belong to me. So I feel like we can't talk about this section of Luke, Luke without talking about the lost son that is hands down will always forever be my favorite the prodigal son yeah oh see that's one of the last son in my book read right over oh i i've i I just love it it's just so beautiful and i think honestly one one of of the reasons i read this a hundred times i i always just love do it the picture i just love that picture of of that lost son coming back and then like as we keep reading in Luke there later on that he's talking about how much rejoicing is over one sheep that is found and how the angels rejoice over one lost person well that's what it is that's what he came for and I think (laughs) one of the reasons I love it so much is because of the Jesus storybook bible that's one of the stories in that book that stabs me in the heart every single time I read it and so ever since I read it from that little kid's book so Timothy Keller has actually ruined that. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> me. Have you read The Prodigal God? No, but I'm I reading Tim Keller book right now. I think it's The Prodigal. I think it's called The Prodigal God. Yeah, I might have that, that wrong. He, read, he wrote a book and basically he focuses on the older brother. And right. I am well, that's what... so the older brother in that parable. I'm the guy that's, are yeah. you kidding me? Why do you, and I mean, I've been that way, even with my own family. I remember being saying, kind of being like that with my parents, they were doing something great for my younger brother or my younger sister and my younger, my older brother, when they came to visit. And I was like, do you know how many times I've come home and you've done, and then God totally like me to the heart. 
every time that you've gone home, they have given you everything that was theirs. They have, they have given you everything, everything that they have has been yours and you've had access and you've used it and super convicting. Mm -hmm. Like I am the older, I have been the older brother and it's a very unpleasant feeling to be. Yes. Well, that's what I was going to say too, is I think that I grew up having this parable always talked because it's a really well-known, it's probably one of the most well-known parables. It's not obscure. And I always heard it talked about with the focus on the older brother, like that it was so negative. Yeah. And then reading it from like, just switching that perspective. Not that it's not about the older brother. It is like, there are lessons like that it's totally not about the older brother it's a lesson there is a lesson in there but it is totally about the one who's lost yes and about it's about the father yeah it's about the father like standing there and opening his arms it doesn't you're right it's totally about the father yeah it doesn't matter that the son ruined everything like literally ruined everything yes the father is standing there just waiting for him to come back. And looking, waiting, yes. looking at the, yes. Yes. Like so overjoyed. With expectation and, and hope. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's what the Jesus Storybook Bible did for me was to see it from the perspective of the father. Yes. And that is our father. Yes. That's who he is. Yes. I mean, I have other things to say, but that is a full stop right there. Yes. Great place to end. That is our father. He's waiting for us. So that's the March 6th episode. We'll see you next week for the recap. If you enjoyed this discussion and maybe you're wondering how to get more highlights out of your own scripture reading, you might be interested in joining our in-depth dive studies where we model our process of inductive Bible study. You can find out more at divecollective.org under the studies tab. And we will see you next week.